427, dismissed to Junior Church, 8 and 9. There's clipboards up here for you. And Tom, I don't need the introduction. There's sure everybody knows who you are. <laughs> Good morning. Well, I guess we've had a little winter since we were together last time. Interesting that it waits till March to bring some snow to us, but uh, spring is around the corner. We've changed our clocks, lost an hour of sleep, so they say, and uh, here it is, uh, almost Pat St. Patrick's Day, and you always feel like once it gets into March and then April that spring is coming. Our, our neighbors have a, a large maple tree in their backyard and some of the buds on that tree are already like that. It just seems like, uh, and there's some crocuses coming up. I actually saw some tulips that were about this high. They weren't... Uh, opened yet, but they were coming, so there are signs of spring. Oh, Revelation chapter 2, we looked last week at the church that was in Ephesus, the first church, and spent a little extra time there. Now, the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to cover two, two of the letters each Sunday. So this morning, we want to look at the church at Smyrna in the church at Pergamum. How do you encourage those who are suffering, those who are suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ? And there are two, two significant comments uh, I want to draw our attentions to, attention to um, before we look at these two churches. The first one is Revelation, the book of Revelation, is vital to study, I think especially in our day, in these days. 30, 40, 50 years ago, there was, it just seemed like uh, there was a lot of talk about Jesus coming again, and there was an expectation that he could come at any moment. And we still believe that, but there used to be conferences and seminars and special meetings prophecy conferences, men would travel around the country and they had charts and they had diagrams way before PowerPoint, way before the technology that we have today. But there was just uh, the, the, uh, the movie, The Jesus Revolution, is, is out. I haven't seen it yet, but I, was, I became a Christian in 1972. Uh, and I guess looking back at it, on it, uh, that was the time of the Jesus Revolution, and uh, and there just it just seemed to be a new excitement, a new awareness that Jesus is coming again, and He could come at any moment. So, Revelation is vital to study, and it and it can be understood. Revelation one one, John is on the island of Patmos, and it, the the book starts out the Revelation, and let's just de define that the the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, 
to show his servants the things that must soon come to pass, soon must take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John received this revelation from uh, an angel about Jesus Christ to show unto his servants things that must soon take place. So it's not a closed book. It might be mysterious. There might be things that we certainly don't fully comprehend, but the book itself lends itself to the idea that it is to be revealed. And it's a significant book. It's important to study this book. And secondly, in verse 3, John is told, John writes down, blessed, prosperous, happy, enjoyable, um, gifted by God. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near. So there's a blessing to those who read and hear the prophecy in this book. And it is an encouragement. It is a blessing to see how God is unfolding future events, and they will unfold. And finally, you get to the end of the book, and there's a new heaven and a new earth, and all the former things have passed away. And all things are new in the celestial kingdom of God, and it's a great encouragement. <clears throat> I mentioned that because today we're going to look at the church of Smyrna, the church of suffering. In the past years, the persecution of Christians has not only increased, but it has also spread to more corners of the globe, with incidents occurring in every continent, according to a new report. And we are still at the worst levels of persecution in modern times, David Curry, president of Open Doors USA, said to Fox News. The report comes on the heels of another study by the Center for Studies on New Religions that showed nearly, this was a few years ago I took this down, almost 100,000 Christians were killed for their faith in one year. And that as many as 600 million were prevented from practicing their faith, either through intimidation, forced conversions, bodily harm, or even death. There are many places on earth where being a Christian is the most dangerous thing you can be. It is likely that there are thousands of incidents that are never reported, and nobody knows because Christians are often fearful to tell anyone, even their own family members, according to Fox News in a recent yearly report. So what can be done to minister to those who are suffering? How would Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna have been a comfort to them if you've ever felt alone, rejected, or misunderstood as a believer? These words are for you. Hebrews 13.3 says, Remember, Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies, Hebrews tells us. Today, you and I need to join in the suffering of those we have never met, those we 
don't know their names, those we've never seen, but those who are brothers and sisters in the faith, those that we will spend eternity with. And so I'd like us to take just a few seconds now, some moments of silence, and pray for them. And, th and think about them. Think about their lives, wondering if they'll make it through another day, wondering what their loved one is going through in prison. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you suffered some of the worst agonies of any human being. And you set the example and you understand what persecution is like. Be with those today that are, would love to be in a meeting such as this. An open church, open doors, freedom, liberty, owning a Bible, reading, listening to messages on the internet or on Christian radio, and they have none of that. Minister to them today, protect them, deliver them, encourage them in Jesus' name, amen. Smyrna. Smyrna was a large, beautiful, and proud city. It was the center of learning and culture and was proud of its standing as a city. We also know from history that it was a city deeply committed to idolatry. In particular, the worship of Roman Caesars, and they enjoyed that, the Roman emperor. In 196 BC, Smyrna built the first temple to Dia Roma, the goddess of Rome. The Roman emperor Domitian from who ruled from AD 81 to 96, was the first to demand worship under the title Lord from the people of the Roman Empire as a test of political loyalty. According to ancient church history, it was under the reign of Domitian that the Apostle John was exiled and banished to the island of Patmos where he received this vision. Emperor worship has, has, had begun as a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome, of allegiance to Rome. But toward the end of the first century in the days of Domitian, the final step was taken and Caesar, Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, a Roman citizen must come and burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate saying that he had completed his obligation, his loyalty to Rome, and a guarantee that he'd performed his religious duty. But that is precisely what the Christians would not do of that day. They would give no man the name of Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They would not formally or informally conform. To, to not participate was politically incorrect, <laughs> resulting in job loss, financial hardship. Christians at Smyrna would not worship 
the emperor as Lord. They, they may have decided this based on an account in the Old Testament of three Hebrew boys, young men, who refused to bow and worship the Babylonian king and the image that he had erected in the book of Daniel. And so this letter is written to the suffering saints at Smyrna. And notice how it begins. The angel of, <clears throat> to the angel, and we said the angel, according to chapter one, was probably the, the uh, pastor, the minister there. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Here, Jesus begins this letter to them, identifying with sufferers of who he was. He is the first, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He is the timeless God. He is the first and the last and everything in between. He's the Alpha and Omega whom John had pictured and written about in chapter one. He started everything. He will end everything. And he is in the midst of everything today. And that's sometimes far for us to understand. We think of God in the Old Testament and how he worked and God is someday going to uh, unveil his plan in the revelation, the tribulation, the coming of Jesus Christ, the new heaven and the new earth. But, you know, right, right now we're sort of stuck in the age of grace and we don't really see God particularly moving in evidential ways. But he is. <laughs> and it's interesting to read reports of him working. But Jesus consented and lowered himself to human limitations. He condescend, condescended to our dimension and placed himself in time. He was born. He went through his adolescent years. He became a man. And at 33 years old, he was crucified and died. He yielded. He was a timeless God, and he yielded to persecution. He states here in verse 9, he's the one who died and came to life. I know your tribulation. He knows about it, not just mentally, but experientially. He came to this earth and he became one of us and went through the, the trials and tribulations of this life, even to the point of death, defeating it and living again. He who died and he came to life. But how do you kill one who is the resurrection and the life? In fact, he said while he was on earth, no man takes my life from me. I give up my life. I do the will of him that sent me. So you, you cannot kill one who is the resurrection and the life unless he willingly submits himself to, to allow that to be done. But it was only temporary. Yes, he was killed and he died, 
but he rose again. As the eternal life giver, he goes on to say, I know I, I died and I came to life. I know your tribulation. I know what you're going through. He knows of tribulation. One, one element of persecution is often secrecy. But Jesus says, I know what's going on in Smyrna. This is no secret. They, they, they may be trying to keep it under wraps, the persecution that's taking place among believers. But I know what it's about. Tormentor, tormentors, persecutors throughout history often have tried to keep things under wraps. You remember in the 1960s, some of us, when President Richard Nixon went to Romania and he was given the royal uh, review of the country, the, the, uh, the uh, spruced up edition of what communism is. He didn't see the poverty. He didn't see people waiting in long bread lines. He didn't see the uh, persecution. He didn't see the loss of jobs, but Nikolai Ceausescu showed him some of the prominence of the country of Romania. He didn't, he didn't see people kidnapped in, in the nighttime and taken to unknown locations. Pastor Richard Wormbrandt, a pastor in Romania, spent 14 years in a communist prison, months of solitary confinement, torture, starvation, brutality, brainwashing, simply because he believed and preached Jesus Christ. But that was not brought to bear. Richard Nixon never saw that side of the country. Wormbrandt comments, the cruelty of atheism is hard to believe. When a man has no faith, in the reward of good or the punishment of evil, there's no reason to be human. There's no restraint, restraint from the depths of evil that is in man. One communist torturer often said, there is no God, there is no hereafter, there is no punishment for evil, we can do as we wish. Wormbrandt says, I heard one torturer say, how ironic, this is what the torturer said. I thank God in whom I don't believe that I have lived to this hour where I can express all the evil in my heart. He expressed it in unbelievable brutality and torture inflicted on prisoners. The Lord knows all about tribulation because he suffered as few human beings ever have. The same word for know is used in John 10, 4, speaking about the Jesus as the shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. My sheep follow me, and they know my voice. So the shepherd knows the, the sheep, and the sheep know the voice of the shepherd and they follow him. Jesus knows. Jesus knows of their tribulation, but Jesus also knows of their poverty. I know your tribulation. I know of your poverty. But he says, truly, in the grand scheme of eternity, you are really very rich. They had poverty because of their tribulation. Pastor Wormbrandt writes about the cost 
of imprisonment for his wife, Sabina, and their son, Mihai. When Richard Wormbrandt was arrested and sent to a, to a prison camp, his wife also was arrested and sent to a work camp as an accomplice of her husband. Mihai, their son, was left to wander the streets and look for some kind of work or survival at the age of 11. Thankfully, two Christian ladies helped him at one time, but they were badly beaten, and they were imprisoned for helping this 11-year-old boy. And this kind of thing happened to believers in Smyrna. They suffered poverty for being Christians. They might have been great workers. They might have had brilliant minds. They might have been very talented and skilled, but they lost jobs. They lost opportunities. That happens under persecution. Jesus knew all about their poverty, but Jesus also knows about the slander that believers suffer. You are rich in the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Slander means to insult someone else, to malign them, to smear them, to belittle them. Sadly, it was... According to what Jesus wrote here, it was fellow Jews that were slandering other Jews. Other, they were persecuting other Jews in the Christian community there. And Jesus knew all about this kind of hypocrisy. How often did the religious leaders slander Jesus and try to trip him up and try to get him to confess who he was and use that against him and say he was blasphemous. It was religious leaders. They were so certain that they were right and Jesus was so wrong and they sought to discredit him as the son of God. Religion, yes, even Christians can fall into slander of other Christians. Jesus says, they may be Jews by birth, but they're not Jews in their heart at all. And he, re he reveals now, verse, verses 9 and 10, the true initiators of persecution. It wasn't, it wasn't specifically other Jews. He says, I know of your poverty, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. He reveals the true initiator of persecution, and it's the devil. They are motivated by acts of worshiping Satan. He is the father of lies. He is the prince of the power of the air. He's not, he's not in control but he is allowed freedom. He is allowed opportunities. But what contradicting ideas Jesus uses. The synagogue was supposed to be a place where people came and they met with Jehovah. But he conveys the idea that these Jews met together to agree with Satan to listen to his instruction. Persecutors are doing the work of the enemy of God. The devil throws people into prison, not the Jews, not the communists, not, 
the ISIS, not Hitler, not governments, but the adversary of Jesus Christ trying to silence the message of the gospel. Has it worked through history? <laughs> never, never. Not from the early days of persecution has it ever succeeded. And so Jesus knows of their trials and secondly, he encourages and promises those who are suffering. Do not fear what, they are about, what you are about to suffer, verse 10. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He knew all about what was happening there, and he encourages and promises suffers. He gives several insights about persecution. First of all, persecution, it has a purpose. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. How many of us like tests? <laughs> Young people, you're waiting for a test that you're going to have this week? Now, we don't really encourage that. Yeah, Mrs. Jones, I'd love for you to give me a test in mathematics. Or I'm just waiting for that spelling test or that biology test or that chemistry test. Or No, no we, don't, we don't really appreciate tests, but tests have a purpose. You may be tested, Jesus said. Remember Jesus' words to Peter, Simon, Simon. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But, but, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter was tested. He went through trials. He denied the Lord three times. He went out and wept bitterly. But Jesus came back and asked him three different times, Peter, do you love me more than these? And look how he used Peter on the day of Pentecost. Peter was a leader, but he needed the filtering process, the refining process. Christianity was never presented as being easy. And any ministry, whether it's on TV or radio, that says, come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. Send money into us and you will be blessed, is a false religion. In 1964, Pastor Wormbrandt was released from prison, and Christians from Norway bought his freedom from Romania. The average price, the average ransom price at that time was around $1,900 to $2,000. They demanded $10,000 for Richard Wormbrandt to be released. And Norwegian Christians paid the price. And he came to the United States of America. When he was examined, medical doctors said he should have been dead many years before that. He had tuberculosis. He had all kinds of problems and diseases and injuries. But he believed that God had miraculously kept him alive. Why? He states, so that you could hear my voice crying out on behalf of the underground church in persecuted countries. He, God allowed me to come out alive and cry aloud the message of your suffering, faithful brethren. 
1966, he spoke before the United States Senate and took off his shirt and showed them some of the wounds on his back. And they began to believe some of the undeniable evidence that there was all kinds of persecution going on, in particular at that time in Romania. But out of this, the voice of the martyr's ministry began to make people aware of and to warn of similar assaults on Christians. Suffering. No one likes suffering. There are three, three chief re- meanings to help us understand the way it's used in the Bible. One of the, one of the meanings can refer to letting or allowing something. You remember when the children came to Jesus and the disciples said, no, no, don't, don't bother Jesus. Don't. And Jesus said what? Suffer the little children, allow the children to come unto me, and forbid it not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Let them come. (laughs) I love the little children. So that's one way the word suffer can be used. It can also be used to identify or to to, uh, define uh, something unpleasant, like to suffer reproach or to suffer affliction or to suffer mocking. Jesus went through that kind of suffering. It also can mean to feel pain or anguish with another person. We get our word sympathy from this idea, to share in suffering. Paul wrote to the Philippians, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. First Timothy, or Peter wrote, first Peter uh, chapter two, verse 21, for, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Sometimes it virtually means suffer in death. And, and that, that takes place during a time of persecution. So suffering has a purpose. Suffering is also unifying. Believers become family, helping, loving, forgiving, ministering to, understanding. Brothers and sisters may disagree and struggle, even in a church setting, but all of a sudden let somebody from the outside come in and begin to attack or malign or persecute a fellow Christian, and all of a sudden there's a unity, a strong bond. A church family, a body, is only as strong and loving as the individual members are. As we read these letters from Jesus, we have to realize he's not writing them to a building or an organization, but he's writing them to the the church in Smyrna, the believers in Smyrna, human lives, human beings. And when they received this letter, John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Somehow it got recorded, John wrote it and recorded it and sent it out. And imagine the, the church at Smyrna receiving a letter from John that had been dictated to him by the Holy Spirit revealing the chief shepherd, the first and the last, 
and saying, I know everything that's going on there. I know all about your tribulation. I know you're being persecuted. I know the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation, but it's not going to last. It's unifying. The communist propaganda was you're forgotten. Your Christian brothers and sisters, they don't know you're here. They could care less. They're on living their lives. They would lie to Richard Wormbrandt. They would say that his wife has forgotten him and left him. His son didn't want anything to do with him. The people in his church, churches, they, uh, they got another pastor, Richard. You're, you're not needed anymore. But it was a lie. <laughs> Persecution is also, suffering is also purifying, purifying. Jesus had no words of correction for this church. Church at Ephesus, they'd left their first love. The church at Smyrna, he says nothing correcting them. They were in love with him. They were devoted to him. Persecution has a way of sifting out what is unimportant or selfish or lustful. Persecution from without silences the petty differences that plague the church within. Being attacked from outside, we're not gonna, we're gonna get along with each other. Perse suffering is defining. <laughs> were, the, were the Christians at this time going to subject themselves to worshiping Caesar? This was, this was defining. I mean, if you were a Christian, it cost something. Persecution is not to be feared. He says, don't fear him who is going to do this. You'll be tested. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As the one who died and lives and knows all about suffering, Jesus tells them the same thing as he told his disciples in John 14, fear not, let not your hearts be troubled. It's amazing as you read the accounts of men like Richard Wormbrandt and many others to realize their determination and resilience. At one point, Richard Wormbrandt was in prison and they said, Pastor Wormbrandt, we're gonna, let, we're gonna release you. You can go back to your church. You can even preach. But you have 35 members in your church, and we're watching you. If we come on a Sunday morning and there are 36 members in your congregation, you will go back to prison. <laughs> and Richard Wormbrandt wasn't about to abide by them. They all of a sudden had 36, 37 members, other people coming, and Richard Wormbrandt went back to prison. There seemed to be a resilience in his heart. Jesus often spoke words of peace to calm human fears and to give them strength. And it is conquerable. Jesus never said, oh, just chin up, hang in there, hip, hip, everything's going to get a little better eventually. Something good's going to happen to you, you know. The believer's faithfulness to Christ gives way to his eternal life that flows from him. Uh, he says here, be faithful unto death even, and I will give you the crown of life. 
Again, he repeats this phrase that he gives to each of the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. No, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die in gain is gain. And John would later record in Revelation 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. We close this letter by rem remembering a man named Polycarp. Polycarp is a well-known name in church history. He was born in 69 AD, had a godly mother, instructed, he was instructed by the apostle John and appointed as the bishop at the church at Smyrna. He was a fervent prayer warrior. When the emperor's guards came to arrest him, Polycarp said, I will go with you, but just give me an hour. And while he was in prayer, he, he had servants bring food to the guards. They ate, Polycarp prayed, and one hour turned into two hours, and the soldiers wondered while they, why they had been sent to arrest this gentle 86-year-old man. But he was finally arrested. He was brought to the arena on the Sabbath day, February 23rd in the year 155 AD. And the screaming crowd of men and women cried, away with the atheists. Christians were called atheists because they believed <laughs> that these Christians were worshiping uh, a false god. And the proconsul pleaded with him to swear by the name of Caesar. And you can go free, Polycarp. Just, uh, just acknowledge Caesar is Lord. But he would not do that. Instead, he said, I am a Christian. For 86 years I have served Christ, and he has done me no harm. How can I then blaspheme my king, who saved me. Ironically, the crowd on the Sabbath day, many of them Jews, went and gathered firewood for his <laughs> burning at the stake. And as, as the flames were lit, he prayed this prayer. Lord God Almighty, Father of your blessed and beloved child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received and knowledge of you, God of angels and hosts of all creation, and of the whole race of the upright who live in your presence. I bless you that you have thought me worthy of this day and hour to be numbered among the martyrs and share in the cup of Christ for resurrection to eternal life, for soul and body in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. Among them, may I be accepted before you today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, just as you, the faithful and true God, have prepared and foreshown and brought about for this reason. And for all things, I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom be glory to you with him and with the Holy Spirit now and for the ages to come. And with that prayer, Polycarp was burned at the stake. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death.
And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. When a husband and wife begin to make concessions in their marriage, agreeing to the physical advances made by an outside party, the very, very foundation of their marriage relationship is at stake. Key elements of trust and commitment to promises, dedication to one person, and one person only give way to passion, to lust, to selfish desires, to pleasures in dramatic negligence of their spouse. This, This was part of the problem with the church at Pergamon that was taking place. They had been deceived by certain leaders. They'd been involved in the activity of worshiping false gods. This further led to the practice of sexual immorality. The term means to permit oneself to be drawn away by another into idolatry to practice fornication. Spiritually speaking, they were turning away from loving Jesus Christ to learning to, 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 to loving uh, another. And this was ex- extremely threatening to the Lord in their relationship. Christ was their bridegroom, and he and they were their they was his they were his bride, and he confronts the the issue head on. Notice how he's introduced here to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, and if you note, as he introduces himself into each of these churches, it's part of. What we see in Revelation chapter 1 that John records the first and the last to the church at Smyrna, the one with the sharp two-edged sword to the church at Pergamum. And John sees him in the middle of these seven churches as as, as Jesus holds them in his hand and close to himself. Pergamum was an interesting city. It was known chiefly for its religion and its many temples erected to many gods. One of the main gods was that of medicine worshipped under the form of a serpent. Yeah. The gods of Athena, Zeus, Dionysus, god of drunkenness were just a few. It was the capital city of Asia Minor for 300 years. It was the first city to build a temple to Caesar, Augustus. The term parchment comes from the name Pergamum, and the city became a cultural center with a library of over 200,000 volumes. But Jesus says, I am the one with great authority, the power of a sharp two-edged sword. Now, who would argue with somebody with a sharp two-edged sword? I don't think so. You don't want to get near that person. But it's referenced seven times in the New Testament, one time in the book of Luke, and then six times in the book of Revelation. From his mouth, Revelation 19.15 says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So what kind of message does he bring to the church At Pergamum, a two-edged sword carries two aspects. 
First, it's a representation as a double-edged sword indicating, on the one hand, the way God's word, by its promises of salvation, cuts a person loose from the chains of sin and condemnation that bind the helpless sinner, as one theologian puts it. On the other hand, the same word is the means of condemnation and judgment for those who refuse the message of grace. The word of God is both the instrument of salvation and the instrument of judgment, a pertinent message to the church at Pergamum, which needed to be reminded of the difference between those who were true Christians and those who rejected the gospel. What else do we know about a two-edged sword? Well, the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus is the living word. And here he's speaking to his church. And first of all, he declares their condition. Three things are good. One thing is bad. He speaks of their faith. He knows all about their situation that they faced every day. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. They had faith. They believed the Lord. They were trying to live for the Lord. But everywhere they shopped, every day they went to the supermarket or the, the, uh, the uh, uh, place to get their hair cut or to do business, to buy uh, items of merchandise. They were faced with these false pagan temples and the worship of false gods. Every time they went outside their doors, they saw it. Jesus knows And they held the name Christian in their faith. They had conviction to their faith. Jesus spoke a lot about faith, didn't he? He said, have you no faith? O you of little faith. He said, I have not found so great faith. No, not in all Israel. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the sick of the palsy, Your sins are forgiven you. And then he said to one individual, according to your faith, be it unto you. Faith is so important. He saw the conviction of their faith. He knew the courage of their faith. The church at Pergamum was holding on to the faith, even when Antipas, possibly their pastor, had been martyred. So what about us today? Where is our faith taking us today? Does Jesus know the world scene that we go out and face every day? Does he know about the materialism, the secularism, the broken homes, the drug addiction, the suicides, apathy towards Christians, animosity towards Christianity, the anxieties that we face? He encourages faith in everyday life. But there was a problem, and he diagnosed the major problem, the compromise 
of their faith. Satan could not destroy their faith or steal their faith, but he could compromise it. And he says, just like in the days of Balaam, that's happened to you in the church today. Balaam was a prophet who was instructed by the king of Moab to curse Israel, but he would, every time he tried to pronounce a curse on Israel, God would bless Israel instead. It worked the opposite. And so the, the king demanded, well, how then can we corrupt the Israelites and destroy their worship, which was ultimately what the devil wanted to do. Well, adulterous women should be sent to seduce the Israelite men who would intermarry with them and cause them to begin to worship pagan gods. And that was done. And God was greatly dis displeased with that. The teaching of Balaam would destroy the faithfulness of God's children. And that was happening in Pergamum along with the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which that was mentioned in the church at Ephesus letter. The followers of Nicholas were involved in immorality and assaulted the church with sensual temptations. And Jesus wants this corrected, and he wants it corrected immediately. But I have a few things against you, the teaching of Balaam, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what should be done, verse 16 of chapter 2? Therefore, repent. Same thing he told the church at Ephesus. If not, if there is no repentance, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. Stop doing what you're doing, stop going in this direction and go in the opposite direction. Prepare for spiritual surgery, which the word of God will do if there isn't repentance. The word would cut them to the core as it judged their practice. David Jeremiah com comments, this strong statement reveals how the Lord feels about compromise in the life of a Christian. It's very serious. And so we are challenged. We may be tempted to ask, how can a loving bridegroom <laughs> speak so harshly to his bride? But maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe the question should be, how in the world can the bride of Christ commit spiritual immorality against the very creator who made her and loved her and gave his life for her? Forsaking the living, living God for monuments of stone and institutions of human invention and temples to uh, Roman kings and emperors who would come and go. And we have this today. People worshiping, giving their time and their talent and their energy to all kinds of things and activities that are here today and gone tomorrow. See, the problem, the problem of compromise is believers begin to think like people who don't know God think. Believers start acting and reacting like people who don't know God act and react. Believers do what people who don't know God do. And what happens to their testimony for the Lord? They may still profess a faith 
and use the Christian logo, but their life says something entirely different. But yet, yet there's hope. He who has an ear, in other words, he who will listen, he who will give his ear and attention to the Spirit of God, he says, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is the manna? Well, you think of manna in the Old Testament was sustenance. And here he is providing eternal sustenance. His word will sustain you. And this idea of a white stone, there's old speculation, but... Uh, the, white, the white stone compared to a black stone, a white stone was given to a victor in a conquest. And that gave him entrance to the time of celebration when the contest was over. Personally inscribed, entrance into the winner's celebration. The word of Christ to this church of Pergamum is a stern warning to modern Christians to us today to examine our morality, our faith, and to follow the word of God where this conflicts with the standards of men. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your instruction and correction. Thank you for your sympathy, your suffering with those that are suffering. You know all about it. You've been there. You struggled. You went through tribulation and persecution, even unto death. And so we pray today that you would be near those who are struggling, those who are struggling with compromise in their faith. Strengthen them. They can conquer. They can overcome by the power of your word. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen. Turn your hymn books to 423. The solid rock, and let's stand and sing the solid rock together. 423. Hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. <laughs> My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my hanker holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. 
When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, your son, Jesus Christ, coming and paying the price, suffering, dying on the cross, but rising again so that we would know we could have eternal life. Thank you for drawing us to his side. Thank you for causing us to see the truth of the word and, and to come to know him. Thank you that it is on that solid rock that we stand. And as we study these different churches that we recognize the possibilities of the errors that could creep in, the things that could happen, and help us to remain faithful to your word, that we might live for you, not just on a daily, day-to-day -day basis, uh, watching the normal things of life, but recognizing that the battle is so much greater, and that there's so much more going on as Satan attacks and tries to destroy Christianity. We pray you'll help us to be faithful and help us to pray for those who are faithfully living and dying for you in other countries. We thank you for this word today from these churches and look forward to the day when we will stand in glory with you, praising you, seeing you face to face. Keep working in us, Lord, as you have promised. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.